We need to remember these are <clears throat> companies mostly on the life side. Some of them do have property and casualty and commercial lines. And we want to be sure that the TARP funds aren't used to you know, unfairly subsidize or compete in those other areas where the application hasn't been made. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And that was former New Hampshire Senator John Sununu, you just heard at the top of the podcast, talking on CNBC about the possibility that the government could extend TARP funding to life insurance companies. Today is Wednesday, April 8th. And today is the day we're going to talk about life insurance. And I'd like to ask how many of you out there, God forbid anything bad might happen, how many of you feel you are truly protected you and, and your family. All right, I'm just kidding. We're not going to sell life insurance. Right. Uh, actually, we're going to do kind of the opposite, um, and well, you'll see about that. Yeah. But first, Alex, our planet money indicator. The indicator today, 30%. 30% is the amount that listener Brian McCaffrey, an IT recruiter, says he is seeing hourly pay decline by. Wow. 30%. That is rough. That is rough. So here's what we learned about McCaffrey. He is the head recruiter for a company called Hyatt Leader in New York. Not the hotel chain. Not the hotel chain, although it's spelled the same. It's his job to find temp employees for companies, but not like regular temp employees. We're talking really smart tech people, computer tech people with advanced degrees to build networks or design big computer systems. And normally these guys get paid you know, more than $80 an hour. McCaffrey says that pay started to fall about six to nine months ago with employers cutting back on hourly rates. But this week, he saw something particularly surprising, an employee offering to drop his own rate from $80 an hour to $55 an hour. He told Planet Money's Caitlin Kenny all about it. For the first, I'd say, half of, of this downturn, people were really resistant on their hourly rates, not willing to come down very much. And it was it was... Uh, a constant battle. Uh, and in this case, a uh, gentleman who'd worked for my company almost a year, done a very good job for us, and was not renewed on his contract, offered uh, you know, what amounts to almost a 35% cut on his rate without me you know, even asking. And you know, I would imagine that's the case with most people, and, and it is the case with most people that I talk to. Um, and then when, it, when push comes to shove, there's probably even another 5% more uh, that people are willing to come down after that when, you know, when things get to the point of signing contracts. And how long have you been doing this type of recruiting? Um, I started in the business in 1998. So have you seen these kind of rate cuts before? You know, um, not really, no. Uh, the... The the market, you know, went through a, a big upheaval uh, during the dot-com bust, but uh, I didn't see this. I mean, it's hard to say because the during the dot-com bust, uh, people were willing to, to sit it out a lot longer. There wasn't as much fear. Um, and, and now I'm seeing people that are, are much more eager to get back to work as quickly as possible. Man, 30%, that is some serious wage deflation going on there. That's the kind of thing that gets economists and central bankers really, really scared. Uh, because when wages fall, then prices fall, then wages fall some more. And you enter what is called the dreaded wage price deflationary spiral, which economists always tell us that's much worse than 
out-of-control inflation. And Adam, we've talked about this before, I know, on the, on the program, but it's, it is one of those things that like, I always have to like, wrestle with because I always think of it like, okay, I, if, if I have a job and my pay is more or less steady, then deflation is, is good for me. I can, you know, if, if, if it costs you know, half as much to buy a pizza, then I can buy more pizza. I'm richer. Right, right. And, and that, is, that would be true if you had your steady income and your, the nominal amount of your income. You make 100000 You keep making 100000 even if 100000 is buys you more stuff. But the problem wouldn't be for you right away. It would be for the economy at large. You know, let's say someone has like some brilliant new idea for a new product and they want to get an investor to invest in it. And, you know, you could sell that product, say, for $10 and make a nice profit. But the investor is going to say, wait a second, deflation is out of control. If I invest today, a year from now, you're only going to be able to sell that product for $5. The profit's going to be way smaller. It's just not worth it to me to invest in anything. I'm not, I'm just, I'm not going to be able to make my money back. Right. So new ideas don't get funded. This kind of investment is, is essential to have the economy grow. And if these new ideas don't get funded, eventually the economy just stagnates. And presumably, if it goes on long enough and bad enough, it'll affect even those who are now making you know good, good salaries. Uh, so that I'm not saying that's where we're going. The government is working very hard. We talked about one sector. You know, this would have to be broad across all sectors, and the go- that's one of the big things the government is focused on. So hopefully they prevent that. But that's always it's always been every time I hear that it's always like that. So why doesn't the government want things to get cheaper for me to buy? And that's, I know that's it is the counterintuitive. Yeah. It takes it always takes me a minute to think it through. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Alex, shall we move on to insurance? Yes, let's do. All right. The Wall Street Journal had a report today that. Um, very soon, we don't know when, any any minute now, any day now, the Treasury Department is going to let the world know that, hey, we're going to bail out a whole other industry, this time the life insurance industry. Right. And we don't know the details yet, who gets the money, how much they get. Uh, but we brought in Rolf Winkler uh, with Option Armageddon, a very helpful blog. Which you can Google. The URL is a little hard to, to say on the radio, but we'll link to it. And if you Google Option Armageddon, you can find him. And uh, when we sat down, Alex presented his understanding of how the insurance industry works. So I'm going to lay out the way I think it works, and you can tell me if I'm right. My understanding of how it works is I pay my premium uh, every month or every year. The insurance company takes my premium, puts it in a pool with all sorts of other premiums. That pool is invested very con- conservatively. And then when I, I die, my annuities are paid out of that pool because they've invested it over, over time. It's taken, I've, I've paid over a lifetime of premiums, and so that's, that's there for me. Is that not the way it works? The key word that you used was invested very conservatively. I see. Now, over the last five, ten years, um, we have found out that plenty of conservative investments that were rated AAA were not, in fact, conservative at all. They weren't AAA. Um, Plenty of insurance companies have found themselves knee-deep in residential mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities that can lose value. Now, Adam, you know, I've talked a lot here about how it's impossible to see how much of these toxic securities, these junk securities, big banks own. 
and it's which means it's impossible to know how healthy or unhealthy they are. It seems like insurance companies are, are the same way. Right. And Rolf helped us understand this. And we have to get just a tiny bit technical. I'm going to pre-translate some of the jargon that <laughs> okay. Rolf uses. Um, insurance companies and banks are the same way. For accounting reasons, they hold their assets in something called tiers or, or levels. Usually tier one capital is sort of the capital, the money that's available right away. And usually we, we have a pretty good picture of what's in that. We, we can see a company's tier one capital. But the higher up you get, like tier two capital and tier three capital, it's just less and less clear what they have. I mean, hopefully they know what they have, but we as outsiders don't really know. And that's what the problem is. We have to take their word for it. And we're not sure we trust their word. And, and so, Rolf, what Rolf does is he looks at how much tier two and tier three capital these these insurance companies have as a way of sort of gauging like how how safely they've invested. Just to give you an example, I, I looked up today the uh, annual report for Hartford, mm-hmm. uh, the Hartford Group. Uh, as of December thirty first, they had total shareholder equity of nine point three billion dollars. Um, they had level two assets. Of 115 billion and level three assets of 15 billion. Putting that in context, we look at Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, tiny sliver of equity relative to this huge bucket of assets. Right? It only takes a just a little smidge of a drop in the bucket of assets to wipe out all the equity and give the company a negative net worth. And sure enough, with you know the veil is off with Fannie and Freddie and. You know, a year ago, everybody said they were probably fine, and now the Obama administration has committed to giving them four hundred billion dollars. And I gotta say, what always annoys me about all this—I mean, it's just so frustrating as a reporter—we we can't even tell how big the problem is. You know, like now we're learning there's a whole other section of the financial in world that's in trouble, and when we enter that world, the life insurance world, we really don't know. Which companies are sick? Which are healthy? How sick? How healthy? What what we taxpayers are on the hook for? Right. And we asked Ralph what seemed like a, a simple question. How many life insurers are in trouble? It's difficult to know because, again, there hasn't been much disclosure about what kind of assets they're carrying. As Alex said, you know, I've been paying my premiums and they've been investing them, hopefully conservatively, in order to meet their obligations over time. But... None of them are willing to really disclose what those assets are, really how how healthy uh, their balance sheets are. Do they, in fact, have the capability to pay off these liabilities over time? Mm-hmm. Maybe they do, and in fact, I maybe I'm I'm completely wrong, right? Let, let's just say, and you know, you'll get the uh, PR people on the phone to talk about, oh, he's nuts, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, prove it to me. Tell me what's on that balance sheet. And if I'm wrong, great, mm-hmm. great, fantastic. I would love to be wrong, but. This is the story of what's going on in America right now is everybody's hiding what's on their balance sheet because everybody with any knowledge of what's actually there knows the hard truth. We did take Rolf up on his bet and called the basically the PR arm for the life insurance industry, which is the American Council of Life Insurers. And we asked them to give us some guidance, you know, how healthy their members are. They told us right now they're not willing to go on the radio or on the podcast, but they were happy to send along a written statement. Which I have right here in my hand. Um, Let's see. It's called ACLI Statement on Status of Life Insurers and Capital Purchase Program. 
ACLI and its member companies look forward to Treasury's decision regarding life insurer's inclusion in the Troubled Asset Relief Program Capital Purchase Program. This is good stuff, isn't it? Should I keep going? You know what? I'm going to suggest that we skip over some <laughs> it's of the- It's radio gold, dude. It's radio gold. <laughs> it's a little thick. But, but there was some stuff I found very interesting. Um, they, they, they do give a brief and, and, frankly, incredibly vague overview of this central question. What are they invested in? And let me read this. Um, I'm going to paraphrase a little, but I'm reading off the statement. At the end of 2007, they had about $5.1 trillion. That's a huge chunk of our economy. That's a lot of money. And about half of that $5.1 trillion, this statement tells us, was held in bonds. They tell us that a lot was in corporate bonds. I think we can assume a lot are in U.S. Treasury bonds and maybe more toxic kind of bonds. We don't know. They don't say. And and the statement says nothing about the other half of that $5.1 trillion where it's invested. And it says nothing about what the liabilities are. So basically, this particular statement does not answer the question we have at all, I would say. Right. It leaves half of that $5.1 trillion unaccounted for it, the statement does. And I really actually love this sentence. Can I read you one more thing? Yeah. As with all industries, the recent market downturn has caused life insurers to alter their typical investment strategies. Yeah, that's a good sentence. (laughs) Getting hit by a truck while I was drunk has altered my typical walking across the street strategy. (laughs) Right. Is that spoken from personal experience, right? I was not drunk, Alex, and it was a cab. And that is a true story. But I'm not going to get into that now. Right. And that is a wrap for us. Um, Hey, listen, we need some green shoots, some good news out there. We've got too much bad news all the time. What good stuff are you seeing happening out in the real world, out in the real economy? Anything? Let us know at planetmoney at npr.org or on the blog at npr.org slash money. And, you know, I always like bad news, too. So don't you don't have to only send in good news. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. I'll